Well, good morning. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series of, in the book of Philippians, and uh, really excited to be a part of our team of preachers as we unpack all that Paul wants to teach us and challenge us in, both personally and as a, a church community. If you do have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 30. We'll be working our way through that this morning. Uh, If you don't, you're welcome to follow on the screen. This morning, I want us to think about how we respond when life just flat out seems to imprison you. When we're going through life and the circumstances that surround us uh, seem to chain us down and hold us back and straitjacket us and limit us, how do we respond Of course, we know Paul, the apostle, he was literally in prison in Rome writing this letter to the Philippians. And he was confined, I mean, and he he was, uh, uh, you know, sharing the gospel, and he was confined in many ways, and in some ways it could seem very limited. But what you see with Paul is there was something unique in his processing and responding to his imprisonment. And this morning, I want all of us to learn from him. Um, I've been ministering at Dallas Seminary for many years, and uh, we've been working with uh, uh, some students and also with a school in Israel, Israel College of the Bible. And what's remarkable about the school is that they have both believing Jews and believing Arabs, and the gospel has brought them together and unified them. Of course, the media doesn't always show that. But right now, we need to pray for Israel. And we need to pray for both Jews and the Arabs that these times of crisis would point them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, We've also worked with folks that are doing ministry in Russia and Ukraine. And uh, one individual knows the family. One son is in the Russian army, the other in the Ukrainian army. But can you imagine? I mean, that kind of, you know flat out imprisonment to see this, in a sense, a civil war going on right in the, down the middle of your family. Um, this week, uh, some of us from the church was at a funeral of a, a dear sister who lost her husband. What are you going through? What kind of challenge are you going through in this season of your life? And how Do we respond uh, when we do suffer or experience these kinds of crises? Over Christmas, I've been reflecting on this theme of the narratives that we live by. And it's, it's interesting because sometimes you can talk to Christians even. But the, the, the narrative from one perspective is way over here and the other one way over here. And it's like, wait, what, what's happening? How do, we, how do we think through our own narratives and, and, and those values and how they shape the way we think and the way that we respond to the crises of life that sometimes seem to imprison us? There's a humorous story you may have, may have heard before of a, of a father who had two sons. And one son, uh, was a, he was just an extreme pessimist. And the dad was concerned. He, he loves his son, but he's so extremely pessimistic about everything. He thought, 
Can I teach him some lessons to help bring him back to be a little more balanced in his thinking? Well, then there was the other son who was an extreme optimist. I mean, everything is rose-colored glasses. And he thought, you know, he needs to be a little more realistic. And I want to teach him some lessons, hopefully to bring him back to balance. So the first son, he he, uh, prepared a room for him in their home. And he filled it with all of these toys, brand new toys, really nice. And he, he asked the pessimist son to go ahead and spend the afternoon playing with these toys. And of course, he's hoping that when he comes back to check on him, he'll be really happy and excited with all these toys. And that would help, you know, help him be a little bit more positive. And then with the, uh, the extreme optimist son, he thought, you know, okay, get the shed and get a big load of horse manure, you know, and have him spend the afternoon just with this big pile of horse manure. And that's going to help, you know, temper his optimism a little bit and he'll be a little more realistic. So the afternoon goes by. And the dad comes back and he comes to check on the pessimist son. And he comes in. And to his surprise, his son is just crying. Oh, dad. Oh, dad. And the tears are just rolling down his face. And the dad's like, what's wrong, son? Uh, I'm so worried about all these toys. They're so new and nice. I don't want to break them. And the dad was, he stepped back kind of discouraged. Oh, that didn't work very well. Let me check on the other son. So he goes over to the shed. And he walks in. And for a second, he can't even find his son. He just sees the pile of manure. But then he sees up top, he had dug a hole right in the center of it. And he says, son, son, are you okay? And the son puts his head up and he's grinning to ear to ear. And uh, he said, yeah, dad, I've been shoveling like crazy because I know there's a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) The narratives we live by, and the story's not to say that, that one is better than the other but it's to say that the narratives we live by, those values and beliefs, or as James K. Smith's book, We Are What We Love, those things shape our attitude and our response when life circumstances become tremendously difficult and even confining. And part of what Paul challenges us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ with the Lord Jesus at the very center, must become the center of how we think and how we respond to life's disruptions and crises. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 30. The first principle that we learn when life imprisons you, always rejoice. It's where we cultivate a, a life full of joy, depending on the Lord's deliverance. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now earlier, Paul was rejoicing as long as the gospel is preached. That's what matters. Whether there's rivalry and envy That really doesn't matter. As long as the gospel is preached, I'm going to rejoice. And of course, Paul's chained to that guard and probably sharing the gospel right in his jail cell. But then it continues, yes, and I will rejoice. And there's a second part of this rejoicing that we see in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. See, Paul is so full of joy 
because he's totally and utterly dependent on the Lord's deliverance. There's something supernatural that Paul is attuned to. He knew the only way that he could find strength in his dire situation was through supernatural means. And prayer taps in to the power of God that can penetrate any wall, overcome any obstacle. Nothing can stand in the way of God's power unleashed as we pray for one another. Mark Bubeck in his book, Warfare Praying, said this, and it's so right. It is impossible. It is impossible to overemphasize the role of biblical prayer in the victory of believers. I thank God for my wife, Debbie, who's been a prayer warrior. And you may have your own prayer book. She uh, introduced our family to Stormy O'Martian. Maybe you've heard of her. Here's one book here, Praying God's Will for Your Life, uh, which is a great resource just to, just to have a framework of real practical everyday life praying. Um, here's one here that, that uh, she wrote called The Power of a Praying Parent. This is tremendous. And then this one's probably had the most profound impact uh, on me personally, The Power of a Praying Wife. And you'll notice this one's really wrinkled and there's a lot of things in there because I've needed a lot of prayer. And don't laugh too much because you probably do too. (laughs) Um, Let me just read a real short excerpt here. First of all, let me make it perfectly clear that the power of a praying wife is not a means of gaining control over your husband. So don't get your hopes up. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's laying down all claim to power in and of yourself and relying on God's power to transform you, your husband, your circumstances, and your marriage. This power is not given to weld like a weapon in order to beat back an unruly beast. It's a gentle tool of restoration appropriated through the prayers of a wife who longs to do right more than be right and to give life more than get even. In a way, it's a way to invite God's power into your husband's life for his greatest blessing, which is ultimately yours too. Um, Debbie can tell you all the details and all the tears, but uh, I've been changed, you know, by God's grace over the years through her prayers. One of the areas that we're growing in, you know, we've always been disciplined individually to pray for each other and to pray for our family, but Debbie and I are so different. We're wired so opposites, you know? And so one of the areas we've wrestled with, I don't know if you wrestle with it in your marriage or not, but just being able to pray together in a more meaningful way, in a deeper way. And so this has been an area that you can pray for us, that we're growing in. And it's part of that journey of finding strength in prayer. I love our church. I love it in our elder team meetings that, how many times those meetings are punctuated with times of prayer. I, I love it that our staff, you know, I haven't been in a staff meeting, but I hear that you all are praying every week for us. Thank you. Thank you. Some of you are praying like crazy. You're just prayer warriors. Keep it up. You're praying for our next pastor. But Paul knew that there was something supernatural that was needed for the Lord's deliverance to take place. 
And it was when not only he was praying for the Philippians, but the Philippians are praying for him that gave him strength and power to cultivate that joyful dependence in the Lord's deliverance. Notice in verse 19, it's through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, The word help there has the idea of bountiful supply. Saying from the spirit of Jesus Christ is another way of saying the Holy Spirit. So God's power dwells inside each believer through the Holy Spirit. And we know the spirit convicts and comforts and powers and strengthens the follower of Christ. So when we pray and we tap into the spirit of God, his power comes through to bring us through the situation to the other side and to deliver us. Yesterday, uh, I took Davy and Joel to the gym and we were lifting weights and I was really excited to break a record in a bench press. But I, I was doing three sets of rep and there was a 25 and two tens on each side of the, that free weight bar. And I, I, was, I was going up maybe the second rep and I made it three quarters of the way up and Joel was spotting me. And, and I, I realized that in my own strength, I couldn't quite complete that, <laughs> that repetition. And so I'm like, Joel, spot me, spot me. And he comes and he's like this. And I, Rah, we got it up, you know. But God wants to supply this ample, bountiful help and support through prayer and through the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. God's power unleashed through prayer and his abiding spirit stirs in our soul a compelling hope in a mighty God at work. You know, I wonder when Paul was sitting there in, his, in this jail and he's writing this letter to the Philippians, if, if he thought about what happened to Peter probably 20 or 30 years before that was recorded in the book of Acts, where he was too was imprisoned and God answered prayer for his deliverance. Uh, Andrew Murray, in his book, The Ministry of Intercession, writes these intriguing words um, as he's reflecting on Acts 12. In this chapter, we have the story of Peter in prison on the eve of execution. The death of James had aroused the church to a sense of real danger, and the thought of losing Peter, too, wakened up all its energies it betook itself to prayer. That prayer availed much. Peter was delivered. When he came to the house of Mary, he found many gathered praying. Listen to this. This is amazing what Andrew Murray writes. He says, he says stone walls and double chains, soldiers and keepers and the iron gate, all gave way before the power from heaven that prayer brought down to his rescue. The whole power of the Roman Empire was impotent in the presence of the power of the church of the Holy Spirit welded in prayer. They stood in such close and living communication with their Lord in heaven. They knew so well that the words, all power given unto me and lo, I am with you always, were absolutely true. They had such faith in his promise to hear them, whatever they asked, that they prayed in the assurance that the power of heaven could work on earth and would work at their request and on their behalf. Friends, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what kind of crisis, and it might feel like you're behind bars and a stone wall and there's guards in front, 
but the prayer of the righteous availeth much. And God is going to come and deliver you and bring you to the other side. You know, for Paul, he didn't know if the outcome would be like Peter's deliverance or like James's final salvation in entering the presence of the Lord. But he did know all of the circumstances that he was going through would turn out for his ultimate good in accordance to God's perfect and pleasing will. And he could rejoice in that. He could rejoice in that. There's a second thing we learn from Paul when life imprisons us to not only rejoice and to be full of joy in this dependence on the Lord's deliverance, but secondly, to deeply trust where we become full of courage resting in Jesus' presence. Look at verse 20 through 26 as we read that together. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is no more necessary on your account. Is more necessary on your account. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory or to boast in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Friends, Paul's approach to his imprisonment was not about seeing the glass half empty or even half full. It's about seeing the glass full of Christ. Friends, some of you are realists and we love realists. Some of you are optimists and we love optimists. But is the glass full of Christ in our lives? For Paul... His cup was full of Christ. And that's why he wasn't ashamed, but in contrast, full of courage. He knew God's love and forgiveness and his power, that it gave him full courage in his walk with the Lord, in his preaching the gospel, in his openness to God and with others. Paul had this this confident Freedom, not in himself, but in his Savior. And so for Paul, whether it was by his life or by his death, the work of Christ on the cross was more than enough for him. In verse 21, when he says, for me to live is Christ, this is stated in an emphatic way. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute most important priority in my life. Paul was saying that Jesus was the centerpiece of his life. That Jesus wanted uh, to have preeminence in his life. Even though he was hard-pressed, like being with a vice squeezed between life and death. 
What was amazing for Paul is that all of his sufferings that he went through had a way of removing the distractions and the noise to know what really matters in life and to know ultimately it's that courage to rest in Jesus' presence. Friends, we've got to ask ourselves, what is my life revolving around? Why do I worry about this and that and I'm concerned about this and I'm frantic about this and not really caring about this? Is our cup full of Christ? Is he the centerpiece? Does he have preeminence in my life? And we see in verse 25 and verse 26 that Paul, knowing Jesus' presence, brings him peace, regardless of what's happening around him, and an external focus that's both upward and outward. I mean, his heart, even though he's in prison, he's thinking about the Philippians for their progress in their faith journey and for their joy. Um, earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, he had said, you know, thinking of that God would complete this good work in and through you. My life will be a living testimony of the power and glory of Christ Jesus by making it miraculously to the other side of the imprisonment. Did you know that? That you're suffering is the greatest testimony to the grace and power of God in your life. And we can rest knowing that Jesus is with us. I've shared this with some of you who know us over the years. Our oldest son, Davey, is uh, 20 currently. When he was born 20 years ago, roughly, uh, he couldn't open his eyelids. Uh, hardly, uh, hardly a millimeter. And we often would spend time just holding his eyelids open to try to get his eyes to be able to see. Uh, at three months old, he had his first of several surgeries. And uh, I just will never forget that night before his surgery. It was the same rule for any surgery, no food, right, before, 24 hours before. And that was that night, Debbie was resting. I had to take Davey. He wanted to eat. He was hungry, wouldn't stop crying. And I was just kind of, uh, we were in the town home in the Washington, D.C. area, walking, pacing back and forth as he's crying. And I sounded kind of like a crazy dad, you know, our first kid and the crazy dad. And I'm, I'm trying to convince him, like, Davey, it's okay, Davey, I know you're really hungry right now, but you just got to wait. Tomorrow you're going to get a little surgery in your eyes and you're going to see a lot better. And he just kept crying and crying. And um, finally, he, you know, he just fell asleep on my shoulder. But as I, th- as I think about that kind of an experience, how often is that, is that really a picture of you and me that we're like, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand. Why are you withholding good things from me? Why are you allowing me to go through this? And the Lord Jesus, he's right present with us and he's holding us and he's comforting us and he's trying to tell us it's going to be okay. But oftentimes, like a baby, we just can't comprehend it. Um, You may have heard the story of Andrew Brunson, a missionary in Turkey for 23 years. He got a call from the officials and they thought they were going to get their permanent resident status, but instead they were arrested for deportation. And um, it totally upended their 
their world. He was in prison for two grueling years and it crushed his spirit to the point of despair uh, as he wrestled with what happened. And he was interviewed in a book that he wrote called God's Hostage, a true story of persecution, imprisonment, and perseverance. And he was interviewed by Christianity Today and this was an excerpt from the interview. And Brunson explains, he says, my crisis of faith wasn't a matter of being imprisoned. That's persecution. The book of James promised it would happen. It was more the feeling of abandonment. I had expected strength to pour into me. I had expected to feel an overwhelming sense of grace. When this didn't happen, I became suicidal. In 2009, I believed God was calling me to Turkey to prepare a harvest of souls for Christ. In 2016, when we were detained, my thought was, wait, this can't be. This seems like the Lord is cutting this assignment short. But I learned to see my imprisonment as a crucial part of preparing the harvest, mainly because of the worldwide prayer movement it started. This was something God initiated, God sustained, God driven. A tsunami of prayer crashed into Turkey. It's as if God were saying, I can take you out, but if you're willing to stay, I will do something greater. Friends, God may be saying to you this morning that I can take you out of that situation, whatever it is. But if you're willing to stay in it, I'm going to do something far greater than you can possibly believe or imagine. Friends, we have to help and encourage each other in this deep trust in the abiding presence of Jesus to be full of courage knowing that God is going to deliver us to the other side and that he allows us to go through the suffering we go through to fill our cup with the love of Jesus so that it overflows to one another. When life imprisons you, always rejoice. Deeply trust. And there's a third thing that's so important for us to be reminded of. And we see it in verses 27 through 30, and that is to stand strong. It's not just being full of joy and full of courage as we rejoice and trust, but being full of unity, striving as one for obedient faith. Let's read verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Friend, Paul, uh, Paul reminds us we've got to stand strong and to live a life worthy of the gospel is to inculcate the mindset and values into Jesus of Jesus into our every being. And I love what uh, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, which I have heard rumors that he actually preached here for many years, 
um, who was a, uh, with the Lord, but a former professor at the seminary, Dallas Seminary. He said this, thinking on what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. He said, one of the best tests of conduct is to ask the question, if Jesus Christ were in this situation, what would he do? And he continues, when Christ lives his life in a man, he will live it without compromise. He will manifest through the man what he would do if he were in his own flesh as he was during his years on earth. When Jesus Christ is living his life through his child, the child will be doing exactly what Jesus Christ would do in those circumstances were he visibly present. A test then by which a person may determine his conduct is to ask himself the question, is what I am about to do fitting for the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it become of him? Is it in keeping with what I know about him? Friends, we can't live a life worthy of the gospel that would pass this test without the community of believers. And that's why Paul says strive or contend as one for the faith, one spirit, one mind, standing strong together, side by side for the faith, not frightened by any opposition, knowing that every obstacle, every opposition, every suffering will be God's opportunity to demonstrate his power and glory to deliver and to rescue. I love the core values of our church here at White Rock Fellowship of worship, community, and mission. In our worship services, we want to include biblical preaching and biblical liturgy. And every week, a biblical communion time around the gospel. I love the community spirit that's a part of our church where there's this relational intentional discipleship that's woven in to our small group ministries and our our discipleship ministries. And then, of course, we are a church on mission both locally and globally in making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We especially need each other in the seasons of suffering. And we need the encouragement to keep engaged in the conflict. It's It's a spiritual warfare. I mean, it's a battle. And we need that partnership of one another. Um, I grew up in a six-generation farm in rural Canada, northwest of Toronto. And we had about 500 acres of land. And uh, Laddie was a good friend of mine. Laddie was a sheepdog. And um, this one day I was in the house and I heard him barking really loud. And then I heard some, some other dogs barking. I looked out the window, there were two big stray hunting dogs that were attacking my laddie. So, of course, you know, being on the farm, I had lots of baseball bats around for baseball and for other things. And so I picked up one of my baseball bats and I ran outside and started to to swing this bat in the air and shout, to try to scare these two dogs. And laddie was still barking at them and his hair was on the back of his neck. So we started chasing them back behind the barn. Well, others started to hear the commotion back at the house, and someone didn't know what was going on. They yelled, Laddie, Laddie, get back in here. And so we're chasing these two hunting dogs, and suddenly Laddie hears his name called, so he turns around and starts heading going back to the house. I'm still chasing these two hunting dogs until the one looks over its shoulder and sees I'm alone. And both those hunting dogs turned, stopped in their tracks, started growling, 
you know, and staring me down, walking towards me. I didn't know what to do. There was like a riverbank and there's a fence there and there's a trees there. There's no way I could get there in time to try to get out of the way. So I had to pretend I was playing for the Texas Rangers to win, a, win the World Series. <laughs> and I just stood like this waiting for them to try and pounce on me. But you know what happened? Laddie, as he was running back to the house, looked over his shoulder and he saw that I was in danger. And he turned around, he hightailed it, he barked at the top of his doggy voiced lungs as loud as he could, came running up, and those dogs were scared off. And in that moment, I knew the power of partnership. <laughs> Friends, we have such a precious community. And it's a lot of adjustment and grief and change in all that's transpired. But we've got to stand strong, full of joy and courage and unity. And we've got to keep striving together for obedient faith in Jesus and for the, his sake in the gospel. And so I want to thank all of you this morning and thank the Lord for his grace and call us, as Paul reminds us, when, when life imprisons you, in his power and grace, always rejoice, deeply trust, and let's stand strong together for the faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. Uh, just an incredibly resilient person. Uh, an incredible example of his life just so full of love for Jesus that just overflowed into every avenue of his life regardless of what he went through. Lord, I pray that you would build in us such a sense of your presence and your power and your abounding love in the gospel that we would just be so filled with joy and courage and unity and that though sometimes we're discouraged sometimes we're distracted sometimes we're tired that Lord you would keep us from throwing the towel in and that you would give us strength to strive as one in a way that we can live not only individually but corporately worthy of the gospel, your sacrificial love. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and through faith has given us forgiveness and new life. And Father, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ this morning, we pray that you would nourish our souls as we partake in communion together, remembering your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. And that you, Lord, then died and rose again uh, and are seated at the right hand of the Father advocating for us, Lord. 
Help us to, to know that in a special way this morning. Strengthen our spirits. Strengthen our serve in a way that would be glorifying to you and that would accomplish your good and pleasing will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.